this is Marilyn Michaels, and you are listening to TV Confidential. The Roberts with a reminder for our listeners in Southern California that Kirby J. Pilato will be appearing at the Cerritos Millennium Library on Wednesday, June 12th, beginning at 7.30 p.m. He'll be signing copies of his new book, Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore Story. Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore Story, the first objective cradle-to-grave biography of Mary Tyler Moore that is available now in hardcover and as an ebook through Jacobs Brown Media Group. Our friend Greg Airbar recently sat down with Herbie J. Pilato to talk about some of his other books on television as we pick up the conversation. Let me see if I can remember the bookshelf full of books that you've written. Okay, there's Twitch Upon a Star, the Elizabeth Montgomery biography. There's The Essential Elizabeth Montgomery, which is an equally essential book, and there is the Glamorous Guys, Glamorous Gals duo. <laughs> Glamour, Gidgets, and the Girl Next Door, and Dashing, Daring, and Debonair, the male version of Glamour. Yeah, and then there's the Bionic Book, and Kung, Kung Fu, Fu Book of Cain, Kung Fu Book of Wisdom, um, NBC and Me, My Life is a Page in a Book, and that about covers it. And were you also, I think you're working on a project that has something to do or a speaking associating television with life. It's my, my classic TV and self-esteem seminars, Yeah, which I take to schools and colleges, community centers and business facilities, wherever I am requested. That is the main function of my classic TV preservation society, the nonprofit organization, which really came out of Bewitched. Everything comes back to Bewitched. Uh, Elizabeth Montgomery, you know, she was an incredible person who did so much, uh, like Mary Tyler Moore, for various charities. But she was one of the first to advocate for those suffering uh, from AIDS. She was a big supporter of the disabled community. Um, she also loved animals. But she, when she did Bewitched, there was an episode of the show called Sisters at Heart, where uh, Samantha and Darren's daughter Tabitha befriends a young girl who happens to be African-American. And they go to the park, she, Tabitha and the African-American girl, and they're made fun of because Tabitha and the African-American girl want to be sisters, and a bully at the park says, you can't be sisters because you don't look alike, and Tabitha puts a spell that would help she and her friends look alike. And in the end, black polka dots show up on Tabitha, white ones show up on the African-American girl. Anyway, it was written by the inner city school class of uh, Jefferson High of 1970 in Los Angeles. And it addressed, obviously, the theme of prejudice, which is what Bewitched was all about. So when I was doing research for the Bewitched book, I came across all of this information about this episode and how it was such a special episode. It was also happened to be Elizabeth Montgomery's favorite episode. And I started then talking to various uh, schools in, in Rochester, New York, where I grew up, about this episode. And then when I did the Kung Fu Book of Cain and the Kung Fu Book of Wisdom and the Six Million Dollar Man, all of those shows were about prejudice, I thought. Cain was a Asian in a Western world. Steve and Jamie, Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman were half man, half woman, half uh, machine. And they felt isolated like Cain did, like Samantha did, a witch in a mortal world. Uh, when I did the book on Life Goes On, which I forgot to mention, Life Story, the book, the book of Life Goes On, TV's most realistic family show of challenge, had to do with Corky, played by the incredible Chris Burke, who has Down syndrome in real life, 
playing a character with Down syndrome. It was the first show, a uh, weekly series, that prevented a weekly character with a disability. Then Chad Lowe came along and he played Jesse, who was stricken with AIDS. And this is 1991, right around the same time that Magic Johnson was diagnosed. So all of these books had themes, or all these shows had themes of prejudice that I wanted to chronicle in books. And as I started talking about all of this in schools, it became a thing that I was doing. Then I went to senior centers and talked about these classic TV shows with these seniors, many of whom felt abandoned, you know, um, and felt like, well, their life was over. And I started talking about things that they knew, you know, older TV shows and older films to some extent. So in the world of Facebook and social media some years later, I said, well, I got to have some kind of group where people can talk about these things too, and I can talk about my seminars. So let me call it the, I don't know, Classic TV Preservation Society. I mean, that's, it came to me like that, and have sleepless nights coming up with that title. And then when I got like a thousand likes and members overnight, I said, hmm, I've got to turn this into something real. And I made it an actual 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, and, you know, anybody can form a business, but I don't know if you know anything about forming a nonprofit. It's not an easy thing to do. You have to really, you know, there's a process in getting a board of directors and having a mission statement. And it became uh, now the Classic TV Preservation Society, in which I have amazing board members. David Selby from Dark Shadows is a board member of the oh. Classic TV Preservation Society. Lloyd Schwartz from The Brady Bunch. And um, Gilligan's Island is a, a member of the board. Uh, Thomas Warfield, the great international artist of, of so many different ways. And also the nephew of William Warfield, the oh, famous William Warfield. From uh, Showboat. Showboat. He is on the board of directors. I mean, just an amazing group. Peter Mark Richmond, one of the <laughs> most uh, recognizable classic TV faces in the history of classic television. He's been on TV Confidential several times. Ah, love Peter. Yeah, his beautiful book out. Amazing book. So uh, it's become a real thing. And um, I, you know, I dedicate my life every day to the positive influence of classic TV shows. Anyone who sees me on Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram or who's on my obsessive compulsive email list, <laughs> okay, they all know I, all I do is talk about classic television. If I'm not talking about classic television, I'm talking about family values or positive thoughts somehow related to classic television. My work has become my life, you know, which many times those of us in the entertainment industry and publishing industry, that's really what it is. Or anyone who works at home. You're listening to Greg Airbar's conversation with Herbie J. Pilato about his latest book, Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore Story. Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore Story is available in hardcover, paperback, and as an ebook through JacobsBrownMediaGroup.com, Amazon.com, and wherever books are sold online. To learn more about the Classic TV Preservation Society. Does the society have a website? Do people get involved in it? Why does it work? Absolutely. If you go to classictvpreserve.org, you will see the website where you can make a donation. And we have events throughout the year. What I'm trying to do now is secure a facility where I could have monthly events where we could have panels and show episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore Show and sit down then with Cloris Leachman and Ann Asder and talk about the message of that particular episode. 
right now the main function is going to uh, schools and colleges, community centers and business facilities and senior centers. So if you want me to come do a lecture, if you want, to, want me to come to your school or your senior center or your business and talk about how classic TV and TV and self-esteem are connected, I would love. I'm living proof that classic TV and self-esteem are connected. I was inspired by classic TV shows to become an author, to become a writer. Um, my sense of who I am as a human being. I mean, I was bullied as a kid. I was picked on as a kid. And I connected with that sense of isolation that Samantha had. You know, that she couldn't be who she really was because she would be uh, prejudiced against or whatnot. I mean, I went through that, you know, and I connected with that. I also connected with the fact of that Darren and Samantha loved each other for who they were. And not for what he could buy her. And not for what she could... A is for Aardvark. Yes. Best episode. Best episode ever. So there was that sense of, wait, there's something going on here. Well, plus, then Dora and Maurice and members of her family didn't treat Darren all that well. No. It was both sides. Yes. They got it from both angles. Because they were different. And so they had to deal with everybody's perception. And you mentioned Six Million Dollar Man. There was a scene on, I think it was the pilot, Mm -hmm. that I never forgot. Mm -hmm. He rescues a child, Mm -hmm. goes to all this trouble, and Mm -hmm. his his arm rips. Mm -hmm. And all the mother has to say to him is, what are you? Yeah, or what kind of freak are you? Yeah, and it's like, you're welcome, lady. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that really bothered me. And it was designed to bother me. Yeah. And and you know what? Jamie Summers, as played by Lindsay Wagner, took that to a whole other level. She sure did. She transcended what could have been a very silly premise. And it was a well-written show. And she won the Emmy Emmy for because she brought so much to that. Realism. When... You know, she came on the, the original episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. She died. They, her character died at the end. And fans went wild. This is You can't kill this character. We love her. They didn't love the character. They loved Lindsay as the character. But she was like no longer under contract to Universal. So they were like, okay, look, we can't bring Lindsay back because she's no longer under contract. The network finds out. And so Universal says, well, we have Stephanie Powers. What about her? We want Lindsay Wagner. But we have Sally Field. Get me Lindsay Wagner. It wasn't the character. They fell in love with the person of Lindsay Wagner. So they got her back under contract to do another two-part episode. And she played hardball with Universal. And she did. And it was just for those two episodes, though. Well, then ABC decided they wanted to do a series on the Bionic Woman. And they had to go back to her again. And her manager, who was the genius Ron Samuels, who also happened to represent Linda Carter, and who was also married to Linda Carter, he represented both. He's the one who got Lindsay this incredible deal with the Universal and ABC to do the Bionic Woman series. And it was all because people loved Lindsay Wagner, who just so happened to be playing this female superhero who just so happened to have superpowers. Exactly. When she got... wasn't defined by her superpowers. No. She was defined by her humanity. And had an enormous amount of talent and screen presence. And that's really what it was about. And remember remember the commercials for the toys? Jamie Summers. <laughs> I remember Lee Majors singing that a theme. 
to the background music of the first two episodes that Lindsay did. Jamie. <laughs> Jamie. I mean, the guy, I love him, but, you know, he didn't have a voice. And he, he ended up singing the theme song to his Fall Guys series, which happened That's later. right, yeah. But it was Jamie. <laughs> Great show. You're listening to Greg Airbar's conversation with Herbie J. Pilato about his latest book, Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore Story. Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore Story is available in hardcover, paperback, and as an ebook through JacobsBrownMediaGroup.com, Amazon.com, and wherever books are sold online. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We are the real Brady, Brady Bros. Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of the Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why the Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are the real Brady, Brady Bros. Bros. Let's go back to the life as a page in a book, because that's a fascinating story. Like you can build your own omelet in many places, or build your own pasta at Macaroni Grill. You've kind of built your own Hollywood career out here by kind of working your way up. And in your book, it's a fascinating story. Well, you know, thank you. I mean, I'm very proud, really, of what I've accomplished, because I, I came out or I didn't know anybody. Usually, and I have no issues with with nepotism or people and we're networking in all the right ways but you still have to prove yourself you still do have to prove yourself but i i came to los angeles because i was inspired by 1960s tv i wanted to be a a tv star you know i mean who didn't i wanted to have the herbie j Pilato sitcom herbie with an exclamation point right oh yeah or just herbie j yeah right exactly no period but exclamation or here comes herbie j i like that okay i'm sorry it's okay so i arrived in la Formally, I mean, the formal move to LA in the fall of 83 after I had attended actually UCLA the year before um, as a visiting student. And I went to see an episode of Family Ties being taped. And I saw these little strange little people dressed up in ties and jackets, you know, telling people where to sit. I'm like, huh, that looks like a fun job. I want to do that. So I stopped the page. God bless him. His name was Horace Smith. And I said, I want to do what you do. I says, well, it doesn't pay anything. You sure? I says, I don't care. I was like I was compelled. I says, I want to do it. So after he gave me the person to call, and after six months of calling this uh, person, Eva Hawkins, who ran the NBC Page Group, guest relations group at, in Burbank, they finally gave me the job. And that's when I started learning about behind-the-scenes interworkings of the entertainment industry, and I became fascinated with it. And there was a, a TV movie that NBC was doing at that time in 1985 towards my 18 months, because you're contracted for 18 months as a page. It was called I Dream of Jeannie 15 Years Later, and it was directed by William Asher, who had directed Bewitched and was married to Elizabeth. I'm like, you know, if there's any TV movie, reunion movie, about a blonde sorceress married to a mortal guy, it should be Bewitched. So I wrote a Bewitched reunion, and Elizabeth didn't want to do it. And then I go, how about we do a book? And that's where the transition happened. But the job at NBC, oh my gosh, was like one of the happiest 18 months of my life that I've, I've ever had. That job was so... I met everybody who was anybody in the 80s and who I always admired mm -hmm. from 
John Travolta, because I was a big Saturday Night Fever fan, to Lucille Ball brushed by me. It was an amazing, amazing time. And TV was different, too, yeah. at that time. I mean, I also happened to see tapings of Johnny Carson before I worked there. Dinah, Mike Douglas, and Merv Griffin, like, in the same week. Wow. And you know, growing up, watching those shows, it was like... They were over there, and yeah. it was just never, it was another world. They were your window to show business. Exactly, exactly. And in the, in the same two weeks, I, I saw those shows, and it was magical. And then just a few years later, I'm working The Tonight Show every night with Johnny Carson. You know, it was just, it was a dream job. And you wrote the Bewitched book at just the right time, because you could still access a lot of the people. Elizabeth Montgomery would not talk to anybody about anything relating to Bewitched, but she talked to me. Because around the time that I had written the reunion movie, Bill Asher was going to do a new Bewitched show where Elizabeth Montgomery would come on. She was actually going to do this. Come on as Samantha, introduce this new witch, and then pop off. And they were going to do it like in the UK and it was going to be financed in the United Kingdom, and the character, that the mortal character that this new witch would be married to would be the opposite of Darren. He's like, yeah, come on, let's do the magic. Mm. You know, uh, but somehow they lost the financing, and I had all this bewitched energy, and that's when I kind of like channeled it all into the book. But when I finally sat down with Elizabeth, it was because of Bill Asher. He's the one who called her up and said, you really need to talk to Herbie. Herbie's really fascinated with this entity known as Bewitched. And she told me that. And she says, he never tells me that I need to talk to anybody. He says, but he told me I needed to talk with you. So you can thank Bill Asher for you sitting here opposite me. And she was really, she got all dressed up. You know, it was, we'd meet at like four o'clock. That was her time. And she would get all dressed up and it became therapeutic for her. Hmm. Because she, this is before TV Land, before Nick at Night, when she didn't know how well loved she was still as she was in the 60s. Yeah, people forget when you watch these shows all the time, like we did, the people who did them moved on. Didn't watch them all the time. They'd gone on to do other things. Right. So right. that was the past for them, not for us. Right. Well, yeah, she definitely, I mean, she would, wanted to distance herself so much from Bewitched. She did not hate Bewitched. She loved doing the show. But there was some emotional connections regarding Bill Asher and their marriage fell apart. So she wanted to do as much different product that she could. And she ended up doing a case of rape, the victim, the legend of Lizzie Borden, which her father, Robert Montgomery, was livid about. That she, that she did. Yeah, because he felt that she was doing that particular story because he felt she never forgave him, and she didn't really, for divorcing her mother. So he thought that Liz Montgomery wanted to hatchet him and the new wife, just like Lizzie Borden <laughs> did hatchet her parents. So when he finally found out that she was doing this movie, he called her up and he said, Oh, you would. You would do something like this. Gee. So there was like a real love-unlike relationship between them. Because he didn't want her to be an actress. Then when she did Bewitched and she became a bigger star than he was, there was a wedge there. And when he divorced her mother, there was another wedge there. 
And then she was a liberal and he was a conservative, so there was that wedge. It was a very complicated relationship. Yeah, that's that's uh, well, and she was in her earlier. She was sort of this society debutante. That seems to be what she was being groomed for was to be this this sort of which she she fought against ultimately. She was nominated, I think, five times for Bewitched, and then nominated again for A Case of Rape, and nominated again for The Legend of Lizzie Borden. And she was nominated first, actually, before that, for The Untouchables, where she played a prostitute. But she never, she never won. She didn't play the game. She didn't go to the Hollywood parties. She didn't do the networking. Because she had done that with her father. She had gone through that with her father. And she was as real and as down-to-earth as you could be. So she kind of, like, dejected this prestigious life that she grew up in, which really made her that likable, accessible performer that she was on Bewitched. She brought that to Samantha, which was what was sorely missing from her performances later. Okay, case of rape, gotcha. Want to do something different? Great. Okay, Legend of Lizzie Borden, gotcha. You want to do something different. But she kept on doing yeah. these dark movies. And the likability and the, the charm of who she was as an actress was lost. You're listening to Greg Airbar's conversation with Herbie J. Pilato. We'll take a quick time out and we'll play more of our conversation with Herbie and Greg when we come back on TV Confidential. Know someone with a drinking or drug problem? Learn how to get sober after we share these stories. I was 35 with two beautiful children when my life and addiction started to spiral out of control. After my divorce, I went into a depression cycle and started drinking more often and using prescription drugs. After my second DWI and arrest, my ex-husband threatened to take our children away from me. I was 17 when I became addicted to heroin and meth. I thought I could quit on my own, but I couldn't. It hit me when I was arrested. Get sober now. Your private insurance may cover costs and we'll get you here. It's simple. Just call Elite Rehab Placement right now. Please, don't wait. Your life matters to us. 800 917 2194 at tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit the subscribe button this portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you. <laughs> 